The year was one of violent labor troubles and strikes. San Francisco's general strike gripped the city in a death-like clutch. A gasoline shortage stopped almost every wheel in town. Everyone walked or stayed at home. Serious clashes claimed many victims. Business was paralyzed and hunger threatened the city. While an auto accessory worker strike in Toledo, state guardsmen had to resort to tear gas, lead, and cold steel to curb the temper of the strikers. Spurred by radical agitators, tear gas and knockout gas in a stifling barrage, which turned the Ohio City streets into an amazing scene of conflict. In Minneapolis, a truck driver strike was climaxed by severe riots and fights between the strikers and the police with many casualties. Warfare in the streets, civic strife at its worst. The year was 1934. Sixteen years after the end of the First World War, and only seven years before the outbreak of World War II, the United States was in crisis. Racked by the Great Depression, workers faced mass unemployment while farmers had already dealt with a decade-long agricultural recession. Franklin Roosevelt had just taken office as the nation's president the year prior. Seeking to balance the economy, Roosevelt began to pass a series of reforms known as the New Deal. But workers had begun to strike against their bosses at an increasing rate. At auto companies, coal mines, clothing makers, railroads, and even newspapers. They called for the federal government to address their needs, not only capital's needs. Following a lull in union activity throughout the 1920s, the labor movement was once again awakening. The year 1934 witnessed four great strikes in the United States. In San Francisco, a strike by dock workers led by the radical Harry Bridges instigated a general strike that shut down the city completely for several days. Toledo, Ohio, auto parts workers at an auto light plant struck, soon resulting in a multi-day battle between workers and National Guardsmen. In New England and in the South, Hundreds of thousands of textile workers walked out of the region's mills. Last, in Minneapolis, the subject of this podcast, Teamsters led by revolutionary socialists finally cracked the united front of capital that had reigned over labor for three decades in the city. These four strikes were mighty demonstrations of working class power and changed the course of American history. Welcome to 1934 Mill City Revolt. I'm your host, Kelly Cable. But that was 1934, and now it is 2018, 84 years later. The Great Recession was 10 years ago, but no class war was waged. Instead, capital remains ascendant over labor. Wages remain stagnant while inflation rises. In 2017, the top 1% of Americans took 82% of the wealth generated. Wealth inequality only continues to worsen. Donald Trump, a member of the capitalist class, sits in the Oval Office while the two parties of capital, the Republicans and the Democrats, jockey for seats in federal and state legislative bodies. The Republicans viciously attack the country's rank and file through tax cuts for the rich, passing anti-labor legislation, and preempting working class victories when it can, such as 15 now. The Democratic Party has performed its role to serve capital, sitting idle as unions are eviscerated and banks grow bigger than ever before. Social movements are stifled by their embrace. 
The Supreme Court has just issued major decisions attacking the country's labor unions. The first, Janus, extends right-to-work law to all public sector unions in the country. This entails that non-unionized workers can enjoy the benefits of a union without financial contributions to preserve their victories and allow for their growth. Second, Epic Systems v. Lewis ends the ability for workers to file class action lawsuits against their employer. Instead, they must wage that battle as individuals. Union membership sits at around 10%, down from almost 35% in 1954. Only 7% of workers in the private sector are unionized. And according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics, the number of strikes each year since 2010 wavers between an average of 12 to 15, and last year's seven major work stoppages involving 25,000 workers was the second lowest on records kept since 1947. For reference, in 1954, when the most workers were in unions, there were 265 major work stoppages involving over 1 million workers. Note, however, that the BLS does not count strike threats. Although conditions are grim, there are signs of struggle and signs of progress. This past spring was marked by momentous teacher strikes in West Virginia, Oklahoma, Arizona, and Colorado. Outside of the unions, huge marches for women, Muslims, immigrants, and victims of gun violence have brought hundreds of thousands of people into the streets. Unionization efforts have succeeded or are underway at Boeing, JetBlue, and Delta Airlines. And this is on the heels of Occupy Wall Street, which brought mass consciousness to the problem of wealth inequality. 2011's Battle of Wisconsin involved over 100,000 protesters who occupied the state capitol for over two weeks to defend collective bargaining rights. Since then, fast food worker strikes in 2012 helped launch nationwide pushes for a $15 per hour minimum wage, winning in Seattle, San Francisco, Minneapolis, and other cities and states, and soon St. Paul. Another encouraging sign is that the Bureau of Labor Statistics reports that 76% of the increase in union membership last year came from workers under the age of 35. As this is posted, UPS is in negotiation with the Teamsters, who represent 260,000 workers. And while an agreement has been reached at the top levels, there remains a threat of a strike should the rank-and-file vote no on their contract. Such a strike would have a profound impact on the labor movement, but whether or not a formidable labor movement is arising remains to be seen. But there are rumblings. But why return to the year 1934? The short answer is that we have been here before. The longer answer is what this podcast is all about. In Minneapolis, 1934, capital had ruled over labor for over 30 years. The labor movement had challenged capital's rule over and over again, but the bosses, government, and police beat them down over and over again. In the summer of 1933, no one would have predicted the explosive events of the next year. The Great Strikes of 1934 revealed the class antagonism at the heart of U.S. society. Much of our culture, media, and mainstream history tried to mask the everyday violence that results from capitalism. They pretend that capitalism creates a peaceful and harmonious society. It does so by pointing to technological advances, familial-style workplace cultures, 
and blaming poverty and homelessness as personal moral failures rather than a failure of society. The ideologies of capitalism, both liberal and conservative, hide the fact that wealth inequality, poverty, racism, and sexism, and many other of society's ills are written into the very structures of our society. But 1934 tore all of that away, at least for a time. These strikes demonstrated that capitalist society was composed of bosses and workers in an irreconcilable fight over profits, wages, conditions, time, and especially political power. And when workers try to win back the wealth that they create in the time that they serve, capital fights back, and capital fights dirty and with brutality. Now, as the listener may have already picked up, your host is not at all an impartial narrator. In fact, the central conceit of this podcast is that your host considers himself a Marxist, a socialist. That means, in this story, I'm a partisan of the working class and of the oppressed. I prefer to be honest about my biases rather than pretending that I do not have a point of view. To that end, the podcast will not only be a chronology of events, but will also be an analysis of those events. So in addition to telling you a good story, my goal is to draw out practical and theoretical lessons. But this also means that I am open to questions, comments, or debates. This is impossible in the actual format of a podcast, as I have designed it anyway, so what I plan to do is to post transcripts on a website with comments open. This will also have the added benefit of being accessible to those who are hard of hearing or deaf, as well as allowing me to properly source my claims. Listing out page references in the audio itself would just be too cumbersome. But for the sake of the podcast, Marxism amounts to the following. First, that the antagonism between capital and labor seen in the story is not an aberration, but is inherent to capitalist society itself. That is, capitalism contains within itself an irreconcilable contradiction between two classes, those who own the means of production, the bourgeoisie, or the capitalist class, and those who do not and must work for a wage in order to survive, the proletariat or the working class. There are times when this conflict may be quiet because as a 1920s Minneapolis, capital dominated and demoralized the workers. But society does not remain in the same conditions. The balance of power between capital and labor can shift. This balance of power is reflected in an additional element of Marxist theory, the role of the state. Marxists hold that the state, which means the government, the legislature, the bureaucracy, the police, the military, the courts, that this state exists to help manage capitalism. Because capitalism entails class conflict, the state manages the unrest that will erupt, always seeking to restore the social order. The argument goes, therefore, that capitalists use the state to reinforce their position. This will become obvious in the next episode. However, even as the state remains a capitalist state, working-class power can win concessions. Rarely does the state bequeath rights, benefits, and dignity out of the kindness of its heart. Instead, the working class and the oppressed win those rights, win those benefits, and win their dignity when they demonstrate their power. This is true of union rights, civil rights, women's rights, and even environmental protections. While there may be certain figures in history who rise above the rest, think perhaps of Napoleon Bonaparte, it is ultimately the masses, 
the working class, and the oppressed through their struggle against their antagonist, the capitalists, who have shaped the course of history. If the class struggle is the engine of historical change, this means of utmost importance is the question of power. The story of the Minneapolis Teamsters strike is a story of conflicting powers, the power of capital, the power of the workers, and the power of the state. None of these powers were willing to settle without a fight. A fight over a very simple demand. The Teamsters demanded the employers recognize their union. Everything that follows in this podcast comes down to the simple demand of union recognition and the employers' refusal to do so. The employers were not convinced to recognize the union through words, negotiations, argumentation, or even elections, but were instead forced to recognize the union by thousands of workers hitting the streets, blocking the flow of capital, and hurting bosses where it hurts, their bank accounts. The central argument of this podcast is that the 1934 Minneapolis Teamsters strike shows us how to win. Now, you may not agree with the positions I just espoused about the class struggle or the role of the state, but my hope is that the story will convince you of those positions. But although this perspective will color the episodes that follow, the lessons of the strike are not restricted to Marxists or socialists. If you are somewhere on the left, or maybe think capitalism can still be reformed to be less monstrous, or you just want unions to have more power, there is something in this story for you. After all, a major reason I think this whole thing is worth discussing in the first place is because I do not think its lessons are restricted to 1934, or to the Teamsters, or to Minneapolis, or even to socialist leadership. Not that what happened in the story can be simply transplanted into today's context, but I can assure you that you will perceive similarities between then and now. But enough of the lecturing. How will this podcast unfold? We will begin with the antagonists, the Citizens' Alliance. Episode 2 will tell a narrow but essential history of Minneapolis from the late 1800s to the 1920s, mostly through the boss's view of the class struggle. The Citizens' Alliance was a united front of capitalists that used a variety of means, legal, financial, ideological, and even physical, to suppress working-class unrest for three decades, until 1934. While the Minneapolis working class suffered, weak on the economic front, throughout the 1920s they helped Minnesota farmers wage a political fight with their own united front, the Minnesota Farmer Labor Party. Episode 3 then briefly charts the history of the Farmer Labor Party and focuses particularly on the governor they elected in 1930, Floyd B. Olson. Olson played a major role in the strike, and that he was a farmer laborite adds another twist to our story. It gives us a case study of how the state reacts to strikes, even when helmed by a figure who sympathized with the workers' situation. In fact, the most controversial aspect of the strike then and now was the impact of Olson. Did his actions benefit the workers, or did they benefit the capitalists? We will discuss this in depth when the time comes. In addition to the Citizens Alliance and Floyd B. Olson is another unique element to the strike. The leadership was made of revolutionary socialists, Trotskyists. Episode 4 will trace the history of socialism in Minnesota, as well as introduce some of our protagonists, Carl Skoglin and the Dunn brothers, Ray, Miles, and Grant. We then turn to 1930s Minneapolis, the early presidency of Franklin Delano Roosevelt, the New Deal, and changes in labor law. 
Having then set the stage, we can put all of these wheels in motion as we turn to Teamsters Local 574 in its first strike in February. From then on, the podcast will follow events chronologically through the second and third strikes in May and July. In addition to the themes I outlined above, the nature of capitalism, class struggle, the role of the state, we will also pay special attention to Teamsters practices their organizational efforts to instill democratic norms within the union, but still act as one with amazing coordination, their efforts at solidarity, particularly with other unions, women, farmers, and the unemployed, their tactics with regard to the capitalists, the traditional union leadership, the governor, and the police, as well as their conflict with other socialist organizations in the city and their relationship with the media. Indeed, the role of the media in this story is so crucial that I will be dedicating a second series of episodes alongside the main narrative to the newspapers and journalists that wrote about the strike. This will also help us put the strike in its immediate context, as the newspapers wrote about a number of other concurrent events, such as Adolf Hitler's rise to power in Germany. These episodes will have some additional fun when we reach the point where the Teamsters began to publish their own newspaper to counteract the press. How this will all turn out remains subject to revision and modification, but this is the plan right now. Before we end, I wanted to say a little about myself. My name is Kelly Cable, and I am a lifelong resident of Minnesota, born and raised in St. Paul, if you couldn't tell by some of the local accent that may show through. I'm a graduate student at the University of Minnesota, and I study an entirely different topic than what I present here, the history of biology but I was radicalized by the 2016 election. I entered 2015 as a liberal supporter of Bernie Sanders, but left the 2016 election as a Marxist. Throughout this period, I had heard some mentions of the Minneapolis Teamster strike, but I became hooked on the subject after reading Teamster Rebellion. And I realized that as a lifelong resident of the Twin Cities, and I'm 29 years old, I had never once heard anyone talk about it. I never learned about this event or other major strikes in the city in my 12 years of public schooling. And sadly, I think this is true the majority of the people that live here. Thus, one mission of the podcast, and some of the potential projects I have in mind once I complete this one, is to help restore to the working class, especially locally, the memories of this event. Indeed, my goal is that when some Minnesotans are asked about what makes the state so worth caring about, we have more to say than only prints, spam, and 10,000 lakes. We can now include the Minneapolis Teamsters strike. So I think this has been enough for an introduction. Next week, we begin our story with our antagonists, the Citizens Alliance. Please join me as we navigate Minneapolis's most complex but inspiring event in its history. This is your host, Kelly Cable, and you have been listening to 1934 Mill City Revolt.